0: book of Hebrews chapter 11 we've done things a little differently this morning in that we've left the Bible reading to this particular time usually we have it earlier in the service but I want to read some verses beginning at verse 1 of Hebrews 11 great chapter of faith now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen In other words, faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not just stepping out on fresh air. But there's actually something for your feet to stand upon. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. There are things that we place our faith upon. It's grounded upon something. Even God's promise and God's word. For by it, that's by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So that's evolution out the window. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. And by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Amen. We'll finish the reading there at verse 13. Just recently we commenced a series of studies in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch refers to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses. We've said a number of things already about these particular books. We've taken a sort of an overview uh, of the Pentateuch. And now we're coming down to some of the details concerning these Bible books. And what I want to do today is to look with you at the particular message, the chief message of the book of beginnings, which obviously is the book of Genesis. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which we just read from, you will see that a number of characters are mentioned. It begins with Abel and Cain in verse 4. You find their story in Genesis chapter 4. By faith Enoch then in in verse 5. Enoch is referred to in Genesis chapter 5. And then it goes on to speak in verse 7 of Noah. And you read of his story in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And then it mentions Abraham in verse 8. And Abraham, his story commences at the end of Genesis chapter 11 beginning really in chapter 12. He's one of the main characters in the book. Genesis, as I've said, is the book of beginnings. It is the foundation of biblical revelation. Genesis, literally, is where you should start when you're reading your Bible. The book of Genesis not only is the foundation of biblical revelation, it explains everything that follows it. The Bible is the history of of God's doings in the world. Someone said history is His story. It's all about what God is doing among humankind. It is the history of redemption through the seed. Now we mentioned the seed. It's a very important concept, this. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God is speaking to the serpent. It is really the devil in the form of a serpent. And he curses that serpent and says in verse 15 of Genesis 3, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. In other words, you're going to be her enemy. She will be your enemy. And between thy seed and her seed So those who are the devil's seed, those who are his progeny, will always be opposed to the seed of the woman. That's Christ and his people. And then it says this, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the very first gospel promise in the Bible. It's called by theologians the proto evangel Now, Genesis, I say, is truly the book of beginnings. That means that there's no truth in the Bible that is not here in germ. It is, as has been described, the seed plot of the Bible. You see the seeds of every doctrine in the book of Genesis. And this book, while it is history, it's real history... There was a man called Adam. There was a woman called Eve. They did have children. Abel and Cain and then Seth and other sons and daughters. There was a man called Noah. There was a man called Enoch. There was a man called Abraham. All that is written in Genesis is history. True history. But it's not just history. And it should not be studied merely as history. But as a succinct record of of some of the stages of God's work of mercy to restore us, mankind, to righteousness. That's what the story is. It's a story of the history of redemption as it began and as it progressed. And so when you study Genesis, you should do so in constant view of the presence of the supernatural element. Remember that God is present here in this book. God is present here for the purposes of redemption. And therefore this sets it apart from all other secular books that deal with what is known as primitive religion. You can read about ancient civilizations and the kind of religions that they were involved in. Many of them worshipped the sun, the moon and the stars. They worshipped rocks. They worship trees. They worship all kinds of things. But here in Genesis, we have God present in redemption. And the authority of this book is rooted in the fact that it is part of a volume that is the very Word of God. All 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. This is God's Word. So, Genesis is an integral part of an inspired volume. God breathed out these words. Now the keynote of Genesis is the first sentence in your Bible. And it's simply four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning. I say it's a book of beginnings. And here's where this book begins. It begins with God. It doesn't try to prove that there is a God. It doesn't set forth a whole series of criteria why we should believe that there is a God. It just simply says in the beginning, God. There it is. It's stated as a fact. God in the beginning. And it tells us what God did. In the beginning, God created. Barith bara, he created the heaven and the earth. And then we have the whole story, uh, the outworking of that statement, in the rest of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, including the creation of man. And we've made reference to this already. We'll come back to it in a future message. But let us reassert what the Bible says in the very first chapter, in verses 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him and something that seems to be Beyond the pay grade of a lot of our politicians, including a notable Supreme Court justice, the simple truth male and female created he them. That's it. There are not 57 genders. There's no such thing as a they be or a zer. What utter nonsense. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. And when someone touches that, they are defacing the image of God. That's what they're doing. They're destroying the image of God. God never did create anybody so-called trans. But there is here in this book of Divine Beginnings a fourfold message concerning God. We've mentioned already here God's presence. God's presence. Everywhere you go in this book, everywhere you read, God is present. God is at work. It is God who speaks in chapter 1 and says, Let there be light, and there was light. It is God who comes to Adam in chapter 2. It is God who deals with humankind in chapter 3 after they have sinned. It is God who looks upon the earth and it's corrupt and decides that he's going to have Noah to build an ark to preserve the race. Only eight people left out of the whole of creation. God is at work all the way through this book. And the same prominence of God that's seen in chapter 1 and you can just count them up yourself, the references to God just take a cursory look at the first chapter of Genesis. You see God in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 16, 17, 18, 20, 21, 22, 24, 25, 26. Do I need to go on? Everywhere in Genesis chapter 1, God is present. And he is seen not only in chapter 1, but he's visible throughout the book of Genesis. He's present as the creator. He's also present as the lawgiver, the one who tells us what is right and what is wrong, the one who has the right to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Now it's interesting to me that people who think that the law only came into effect in Exodus chapter 20 with the giving of the commandments, how do you think Cain was guilty of murder? In Genesis chapter number three or, or chapter four, how was Cain treated as a murderer if God's law was not already in force, teaching that man is not to commit murder? And there are various other applications of the law that we see showing that even in Genesis, God is the lawgiver before you ever get to Exodus. God is also the preserver of men, He is the judge of men. You see that in the story of Noah, when God destroyed the earth with a flood. And God is the Redeemer. That's the great theme that we see here, God's presence. But we also see God's purpose. This tremendous theme of redemption is dominant from first to last in the book of Genesis as well as in the rest of Scripture. God redeeming man. God seeking out lost man in order to redeem him. One of the greatest fallacies that's ever preached is that men generally are on a quest to find God. That simply is not true. And you'll know that it's not true from your experience in dealing with other people. They don't want God in their lives. People want to get away from God. And Adam and Eve, when they sinned, were just like the rest of mankind that followed them. What did they do when they sinned? They hid themselves among the trees of the garden. They didn't want God seeing them. They wanted to hide from God. And so what do we find God doing? We find God coming to Adam in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 They, that's Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Where are you, Adam? It's not Adam saying, Oh God, where are you? He knew where God was. Adam didn't want to find God. He's hiding with his wife among the trees of the garden because he's ashamed of his sin. But God, the Redeemer, you see, comes to him. Just like he came to us. He came to us in our sin. We weren't seeking after the Lord. But as the old hymn puts it, I sought the Lord, but afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. The Lord is the one who has a great purpose of redemption. As well as this we see in Genesis, God's plan. I'm so glad about this. God has a plan. Sometimes I wish I knew what it was. And sometimes I think to myself, I wonder how this actually all fits into God's plan. Surely this is not what the Lord wants. But you see, God's plan is carried out under his own guidance with a definite objective which is the spiritual blessing of salvation through suitable instruments. God works through means. And that's an important truth. You see, if God wanted to just redeem a people without involving humankind he could have done that very easily. There would have been no need for preachers. No need for any Christian to pray to him for souls. No need for any believer to witness to their friends or any Sunday school teachers to teach children. He wouldn't have any requirement for any of that. God would have just spoken from heaven and that would have been it. But that is not how God has chosen to work. The last thing we find the Lord Jesus doing before he left this earth was Gathering those eleven disciples on the mountain and saying to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and witness to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. God works through suitable instruments, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He does it through the use of means. And the supreme requirement in those human instruments that God employs is faith. Turn with me to Hebrews 11 from which we read. We've got a tremendous statement there in verse 6 that really says it all in this matter. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith. Now, notice in connection with that, the prominent men of Genesis are mentioned. In verse number 7, he says, By faith Noah. In verse 8, by faith Abraham. You come on down the chapter. And you'll see that mention is made in verse 17 of Abraham offering up Isaac. And then it talks about Isaac's faith. Verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Verse 21. By faith Jacob. And then the the next great character by which the book of Genesis finishes up is Joseph. Verse 22. By faith Joseph. See, all of these men had faith to respond to God's revelation. God puts a high premium upon faith. He that believeth shall be saved. And then we have God's promise. As I noted with you, Genesis commences with God. The whole Bible begins with God. In the beginning, God. But Genesis concludes interestingly with a coffin or you would say a casket Genesis chapter 50 verse 26 so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt it's really interesting that a coffin in Egypt a casket why was there death why was there any necessity for a coffin because of sin by one man sin entered into the world that's the start of the book of Genesis in chapter 3 here's the result of it Joseph died by the way if you were to read Genesis chapter 5 there's a list of men there some of whom lived to what we would call a ripe old age. For example, look at Adam. In, in chapter 5 of Genesis, and verse 5, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Unbelievable. 930 years. Can you imagine? He's talking to somebody who's 929, and this fellow is only 614 he's just a youngster. 930 years. It boggles your mind, doesn't it? But notice the last part of the verse. And he died. And that's what it says about all these men through this chapter. Verse 11. Enos. And he died. He lived a mere 905 years. Then you have Canaan. Verse 14. He lived for 910 years. And he died. And so it is all the way down through this chapter until you come to Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived. And when did he die? Well, the Bible says in verse 27 of Genesis 5 that all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. He died. A coffin in Egypt. This is a result of sin. Death is in the world. But that coffin was associated with Joseph's absolute assurance that God was going to visit his people according to his own word. See, Joseph gave commandment about his own bones. See this here in Genesis 50 verse 25. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. He made them promise, saying, God will surely visit you, And you shall carry up my bones from hence. And that's why his body, ultimately becoming his bones, were put in a coffin in Egypt. And in Hebrews 11, we read about that. Because it tells you there. In Hebrews 11, verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. He told them that God would visit them. He would bring them up and gave commandment concerning his bones. See, Joseph had faith. He had faith to believe that God would keep his own word. He was possessed of a strong faith and of a certain hope. And I'm glad that when you stand at the graveside of a believer and his bones, if you like, his body, his coffin, is put into the grave, you know that's not the end. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. Because the spirit, the soul, immediately goes to be with the Lord. And then at that great day of resurrection, when Jesus comes, that body miraculously will be brought together and infused with that same life, and the body and soul will be brought together to live eternally in a glorified state with Christ. This is the hope of the believer. So we can have the same hope that Joseph had in Christ. A sovereign God was in control of all things, including the future, and Joseph believed that by faith. And that's crystallized in the great statement that he made in Genesis 50. I love this statement because it shows you that Joseph had an understanding concerning everything that had happened in his life even things that at the time he wouldn't have understood you know when he was a young man and his brothers he was trying to be kind to them and they put him into a pit and then they lifted him out of that pit and they sold him to slave traders and when he went into Egypt he's working for Potiphar and his wife accuses him of rape which he was not guilty of and he's thrown into jail and put in leg irons for two years. And if that was me I'd be thinking, why? Why would the Lord allow this to happen to me? I'm righteous, I haven't done anything wrong. and yet Here I am being punished for something I didn't do. But in all of it, we know that Joseph recognised that God had a purpose. Just like he has in your life. With some of the things that you consider to be really bad things. But the Lord is using those. Look at Genesis 50 and verse 20. After their father died, the brothers were afraid that Joseph was going to punish them. Now I'm going to get my own back on you guys now that their father is gone. That's what they thought. But verse 19, Joseph said to them, Fear not, don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, look at this statement of verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me. They had murder in their hearts. They had vengeance in their hearts. He says, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Someone wrote a commentary on Genesis and it's called God meant it for good. Don't we know what the Bible says about that in Romans 8:28 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. A sovereign God in control of all things. God you see has a pur- a purpose, he has a plan, and he has given us his promise. So that he will affect his plan by his sovereign power. And we need to focus on this as Christians in the day in which we live. We look out on the world and everything just seems wrong. It just doesn't seem fair. A lot of the things that take place. And yet we read in Ephesians 1 verse 11. That we've been predestinated according to the purpose of. Of him who, look at this, worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. In other words, he has a plan and he is effecting that plan by his power. Now, let me say that in both main sections of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50, there is one unifying idea running through the whole, one idea and it's true that in the first part there are four outstanding events what are those events? creation the fall of man the worldwide flood and the crisis at Babel in the second part chapters 12 through 50 we see four outstanding persons rather than events who are those four persons Abraham, Isaac Jacob And Joseph. And all the contents of Genesis are arranged around and in relation to those four pivotal events in the one part and the four pivotal figures in the other part. But the principal significance of the book as a whole shines through in everything that we read in it. Dr. Sidlow Baxter, in his great book, Through the Bible said this of Genesis. Listen carefully. Standing right at the beginning of the 66 books, Genesis would bring us to our knees in reverent obeisance before God as it exhibits to our eyes and thunders in our ears that truth which is to be learned before all other truths in our dealings with God, in our interpretation of history, and in our study of divine revelation, namely, the divine sovereignty. In other words, this is the chief message of Genesis. The divine sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is upon His throne. And He is working out His eternal purpose. I mentioned that there's four great events. Creation. The fall of man. The flood. The dispersal at Babel. And there are four great figures Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And they all constitute an impressive demonstration of God's sovereignty. You see, for example, in the first of the four events, there's God's divine sovereignty in the physical creation. He created everything from nothing. Ex nihilo, as it is in the Latin. Out of nothing. But in the second, the divine sovereignty is seen in human probation. Man sinned. But in the third, we see divine sovereignty in historical retribution, where God punishes sin. While in the fourth, divine sovereignty is seen in racial distribution. What happened at Babel? God confounded their language. So that everybody dispersed through the earth, speaking different languages. You think of all the different languages and dialects in the world. Hundreds and hundreds of them. It's because of what happened in Genesis chapter 11. At the Tower of Babel. God did that. See today we have man trying to make everybody the same. The religion of syncretism. And we have multiracial experiments. I don't want to get into that today but it was God who divided the races it's God who divided the nations not man in the second section of Genesis there's a portrayal of God's sovereignty in regeneration from Adam to Abraham we note the course of degeneration the fall a downward direction first in the individual Adam and then in the family notice how quickly things went bad The very first family on the earth, Adam created perfect, upright. He sinned along with his wife. Their son, Cain, murdered his brother. Right away, the effects of sin are seen in the first family. And in his descendants, that sin got worse. We think of how it went out into the nations. Think of the antediluvian civilization. That is the, the people who lived before the flood. How wicked they were. The Lord Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days when the Son of Man comes. We're starting to see today unbelievable outbreaks of wickedness. Things that you and I never thought we would see in our lifetime. The sort of perversion that there now is taking place. It's incredible. Even pedophilia is being, at least they're trying to bring it into the mainstream, so that we don't call people apparently pedophiles anymore. We call them minor attracted persons. What a day we live in! Wickedness breaking out on every hand, and that wickedness that we saw in Genesis chapter six, it persisted through the race even afterwards. At Babel. And then there comes a new departure. We see the process of regeneration operating. First in the individual, Abraham, and in Isaac, and in Jacob, and then in the family, the sons of Jacob, and then in the nation that developed from that, Israel, all with a view to the ultimate regeneration of the race, the redeemed race, all the people of God. And I mentioned that the divine sovereignty is the chief message in Genesis. Let me just briefly say this. In Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the divine sovereignty in election is seen. Now consider this. Who was Abraham? Well, we're introduced to him as Abram in Genesis chapter 11. It speaks there of his family. And then in chapter 12, we have the record of the Lord having said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And that's referenced again in Hebrews 11, in the verses that we read. Now think about it. Abraham is the youngest son. And even though he's the youngest son, he's chosen in preference to his two elder brothers. God's sovereignty. Abraham was an idolater. You learn this when you go to the book of Joshua. You find that he used to dwell on the other side of the flood in Mesopotamia among a pagan people. Why did God choose Abraham and not some other person in Ur of the Chaldees? Well, because that was God's choice. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter Wilder's room? When thousands make a wretched choice, they'd rather starve than come was the same grace that spread the feast, that sweetly forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin who maketh thee to differ from another, there's nothing about you that makes you special other than the fact that God chose you, that's an amazing thought isn't it we see the same thing in Isaac, we see it in Jacob, the divine sovereignty Isaac is chosen in preference to Ishmael Ishmael's the elder son of Abraham. Jacob is second to Esau. But he's chosen in preference to his brother. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I told you the story about Spurgeon. A man came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I've got a real problem with this verse. What is the verse? Well, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, what's your problem with the verse? Well, I don't understand this, Esau have I hated. Spurgeon said, that's not my problem with the verse. My problem is, Jacob have I loved. You know what kind of a character Jacob was? His name means supplanter. He was a twister. An old preacher in my country used to say, if Jacob had remained as he was, unregenerate, they would have had to actually screw him into the ground. When they buried him, he was so twisted. He was a rascal. But God chose him in preference to his brother you see running through all of this is the principle of divine election God chooses whom he will in sovereign grace and I know there are people when they hear that they start gnashing their teeth they don't want to hear that oh that's not fair Paul addresses that is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid God will save whom he will when he will where he will and that's an encouragement to me. And of course when we come to the wonderful biography of Joseph, the sovereignty of God and direction is so clear. There's an overruling, infallible directing of all the happenings, however seemingly contrary. They're coming together to a predetermined end. God's purpose is being fulfilled. In Abraham's case, sovereign election is expressed by a supernatural call. In Isaac's case... God's sovereignty is evidenced by a supernatural conception. It's amazing how Isaac was born. His mom and dad were way too old to have children. They both knew it. When Sarah heard this idea that she was going to have a child when she was an old woman, she started laughing. And then when she was challenged about it, she says, No, I didn't laugh. Ah, oh, but you did laugh. You did laugh. And yet God gave her faith. Because when you read in Hebrews 11, it says, Through faith, Sarah conceived. So God changed her heart. She didn't laugh anymore. She knew that the Lord was going to answer prayer and fulfill his purpose. And of course, then you have in Jacob's case, sovereignty revealed in a supernatural care. Oh, how God cared for Jacob. Looking after him all the way through his life. It's seen in several events that we may or may not be able to get to look at at some point. And in Joseph's case, sovereignty is clearly seen in supernatural control. A control that was acknowledged by Joseph in those words that I just gave you from chapter 50 and verse 20. Ye meant it unto evil. Ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good. And you'll notice it wasn't only for Joseph's good, but for his progeny. For the race ultimately for the bringing of the Messiah into the world to save much people alive this is because God was at work in sovereignty throughout so this is the message of Genesis it's a story of God's sovereignty in creation in history and in redemption and we today can thank the Lord for sovereign grace sovereign distinguishing mercy mercy We're not saved because we deserve it. We're saved because the Lord simply had mercy upon us. And praise be to His name. Amen.